So, how are you doing this morning? Good. And I don't just mean that as a casual greeting. I mean that as if you were to take just five seconds and think, here are three words that describe how I feel this morning, what would they be? What would they be? So I just burned a few seconds of the sermon to let you do that because it matters. Not because I don't have much to say, but I want you to think through that. Because what, how you feel those words are likely very subjective. What I mean is this. It could be based on a compliment that somebody gave you in the hall as you were coming in here. It could be based on a conversation on the way to church, maybe with a spouse, maybe with a child, maybe with a parent. It could be something that you're anxious about in the week ahead. But you see those words of how you felt are pretty subjective. What Jesus wants us to see, hear, experience, touch, feel this morning is something that's more objective and true than even what we might be seeing and experience around us today because it's, it's of eternal significance. And therefore, it is more real than these subjective things that you may have thought of. So if you would, stand with me. We have a short reading this morning from the Gospel of Matthew. And this is where we'll be for the next uh, two months, looking at this short uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through this portion of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. And this morning we'll be looking at the first one. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated. So Jesus took his disciples up on the mountain, much like Moses many years ago took his people up on the mountain, Jesus is a, the ultimate prophet, the greater Moses, uses the same kind of venue to teach, to give the word of God. And he was going to teach them through this passage, through this message to them, his first recorded sermon, what does it mean to truly be a disciple? What is discipleship? Billy Sunday, famous uh, evangelist, back maybe a hundred years ago or so, when he would want to emphasize a point, being a former baseball player, he was so energetic and emphatic about it, he would at times slide across the stage to get people's attention to make his point. And often his point was life or death. And for him, life or death was card playing and dancing. And you better deal with those sins because they were life or death. Now, we may disagree about whether that's really what the gospel is after. But Jesus was communicating to his disciples here, this is a matter of life and death, guys. This is about righteousness. And without righteousness, you will not see God. And unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you have no place with me. So as we think about that, righteousness in the Pharisees, we need to realize 
This is not quantitative issue. This is a qualitative issue. And what do I mean there? Jesus wasn't saying, well, the Pharisees did this much good and they got an 89. They didn't make the bar. For you to get into heaven, you need a 95. He wasn't saying that. He was saying it's not a quantitative issue. It's a qualitative issue. It's more about it's not about human effort. It's about divine grace. And it's part of the reason some of these are referred to as B-attitudes. They're internal, not external. They, who, they are about who we be or who we are, hence their B-attitudes. Who we be on the inside. And it's often said we're human beings, not human doings. Our actions flow out of our being. Our actions flow from who we are, not the other way around. So true change is from the inside out, or we could even say that Jesus is going to turn this upside down. And when Jesus wanted to communicate this to the disciples, again, he didn't slide across the stage. You know what he did? Passage said what? He sat down. Why did he sit down? In that day, if you were to stand up and teach, you were saying, these are essentially my words. This is what I think of it. When you sat down, you said, this is authoritative. Jesus sat down and said, this word is truth. Whether you feel it subjectively or not, this is truth. And we can see that part of the nature of sitting if you, if those of you familiar with Roman Catholicism, when the Pope is said to speak ex cathedra, what does that mean? From the chair. He's speaking, supposedly, authoritatively as Jesus sat in the chair, in effect. The Roman Catholic is saying, this is important. It's from the chair. And what do we call the head of a, a college department or university? The chairman. So again, that emphasis on the chair. And so Jesus sits and it says he opens his mouth. Okay, no kidding, he's speaking. Why did it bother to tell us that? It's saying, again, emphasis, what he is going to say when he opens his mouth, it matters. It is important. And he goes into the Beatitudes. Two sets of four truths. We covered just one this morning. Four basically dealing with God, four dealing with others. And the first word in his first sermon essentially is blessed, blessed. Why start with that? We could say in some ways the answer is simple. What do you want most in life? Whether Christian or non-Christian, we could probably say we want blessing. Now we might disagree on what that looks like, but that is what we all want is blessing. And Jesus does this, again, by turning things upside down. The world says, happy are the rich, happy are the strong, happy are the beautiful, the sophisticated, the wealthy. Jesus says, no, that's not what it's about. So we need to see, when he says blessed, what is it not? And then we'll see, what is it? What blessing is not? It's not just happiness, though someone who is truly blessed will be in some sense, happy, but it is much more than just happiness. Happiness is whether you feel it or not. And whether you're happy today 
depends on things that can, ha- can change just like that. Happiness might be for you sitting on the beach, beautiful sunny day, but then the clouds roll in. It rains. Happiness gone. Or it could be you're out on a date time with your spouse or something like that, having great conversation. Then you get a call from home, the babysitter. The three-year-old thought it would be kind of fun to put the stopper on the sink and turn on the water. Hour later, your downstairs is flooded, so you're not happy anymore about that date time. So happiness can't be found permanently here in worldly things. This earth is broken. So true blessing is not something that can fade away. But we seek to find blessing in fading things. Even though we know, okay, yeah, it's not supposed to be that way. But we pursue so many things. For example, maybe it's food. But if you could afford any kind of food you wanted, healthy or not, ate all of it, it wouldn't be so good for your waistline. But maybe you get that conquered and you're taking care of your waistline because, oh, it's all about having a healthy body. That's what it's about. Well, your body's eventually going to erode no matter how good a shape you're in, injuries, age, that ain't going to work. That's going to pass away. Or it might be nature. You say, God's such a great creator. I just love being outside. It's wonderful. Well, eventually, everybody else is going to realize that, and you're going to be fighting the crowds at the national park or whatever that you love so much. You're not going to find that eternal blessing there. Or maybe you're a thrill seeker. You love the amusement parks or whatever types of thrills that are out there. Eventually, you're going to run out of vacation time. So we, we still try to deny reality so often and find our pleasure in these things that are going to pass away. Like Olaf in Frozen, a little children's movie, Frozen. My daughter asked, I heard her just this morning, how old is Olaf? Good, good child's question. But what does Olaf say for his way to find blessing. He sings, winter's a good time to stay in and cuddle, but put me in summer and I'll be a should-be puddle, happy snowman. Olaf denies reality, finding the ultimate pleasure in earthly things that can't satisfy. Why? Why can't they satisfy? Number one, because they're not ultimately real. These things are passing away What is real is what is eternal is often what we can't see. And just as significantly, they can't quiet the heart in a storm. What do I mean? In the book of Daniel, Belshazzar is reigning, ruling. He has all the money. He has the kingdoms. He has the women. He has whatever. Great big party. What happens? Writing on the wall. Today, the kingdom will be taken from you. All that he had couldn't quiet the heart in that storm because he had nothing to prevent it, and he dies. So we should not fix our gaze on things for which failing to possess them causes us no curse, and possessing them guarantees us no blessing. These other things really can't give us what we long for. But we're not just going to back into and then say, oh, okay, I get it. Those things are going to 
fade away. Yeah, I'll take kind of the second best. Blessing from God. Can't see it, taste it, touch it, but you're saying it's good. I'll just, okay, I'll take that because the other stuff doesn't work. God is good, and he longs to bless his people. He is inclined, the eyes of the Lord are searching every place to bless his people. So what is blessing? It's an objective fact. It's not subjective. It's not based on how we feel. We are blessed to have covenant relationship with God, showering us with the blessing of relationship with him and a chain of other blessings that go together with that. So blessing what it is, it has to be better than what the world offers. It has to be eternal. It's going to last. And it must be worth your soul to give up your soul for it. And if it's better than your soul and it can't be taken away, it must be of God. It must be of God. So who does Jesus say receive this blessing? He says it's the poor in spirit. He says the poor in spirit are the ones who receive it. Now this is not just poor in monetary wealth. Luke, if you're familiar with Luke, in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the poor. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. When you are interpreting these two together, when you have one that's more general, another that's more specific, the more specific is generally clarifying what the more general said. So they're saying the same thing. Matthew is uh, articulating further, clarifying. This is not about just monetary wealth. Example would be this. You could have somebody who's plenty poor in wealth, but they're not poor in spirit. Their clothes, their possessions are all torn up, but so is their heart with unrepentant sin. So that's not saying just being poor is what the blessing is. You can also have somebody who is what we'll say is poor-spirited, but not poor in spirit. What's the difference? There are plenty of people who can complain on and on about their condition. And they do have it bad and hard, but they're just complaining. That's not poor in spirit. They still lack more. They lack an awareness of their need for Christ. So poor-spirited is not the same in poor in spirit, what Jesus is talking about. So what does he mean? What does he mean? Who are the poor in spirit? The poor in that word that Jesus is using is, is, is crucial. He's saying this is poor to the extent that it's, it's like the same root word of crouching. How a beggar would crouch. Utter need. Helpless. Hopeless. Unless you help me now, I have no hope. I am destitute. I am a beggar. Just like the woman where Jesus says, testing her. We shouldn't give to the dogs this blessing. And she says, even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. I'm so desperate, Jesus, unless you bless me, I have no hope whatsoever. I will die. I'm a beggar. I need you. That's poor in spirit. That is what we need. And why, why does Jesus begin say the Beatitudes, with this one. This, this is the base. This is the link that chains into the other ones. When someone has the poorness, the poverty of spirit, 
It leads into, they'll mourn over their sin. They'll have a meekness that's a strength that's given only by God. They'll hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are all chained together. It's not like we can look at the, the, uh, the Beatitudes and say, well, I think I can do that one and that one. I can handle those. I'll, I'll major in those. These others, uh, I'm not going to take those courses. We'll pass on those. They all go together. They all go together. Poor in spirit is like the emblem that a Christian wears. If Superman has the S on the chest, the Christian has an H underneath their garments saying, I'm humble. I'm humble. I'm poor in spirit. Jesus has it, and I don't. And as Sinclair Ferguson says, another thing that shows Christ to an unbeliever is this humility. In a, in a culture that's so, as he says, neurotic about demanding our rights, the Christian who has the poverty in spirit is humble enough to have a poise that says, I know who I am in Christ, and I've offered up all my rights to him, and I don't need to demand my rights. And the unbeliever says, why are you so different? Why are you not like us? Why do you not insist on your rights? My Lord did not insist on his rights. And it can make a difference to that unbeliever. As we, if you could picture it, we, 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 the poor in spirit breathe out humility. Breathe out humility. So brother and sister, you're poor in spirit if you've come to a reality and an awareness of your sins, realizing there is no goodness inherent in yourself. And you cast yourself wholly upon the mercy of Christ. So maybe you hear that and say, well, what if I don't have it? What if I don't have it? I, I think I might want it. I don't know if I have it. What's the opposite of humility? Say pride. What does pride do? Puffs up. Are the gates of heaven wide or narrow? They're narrow. So if we're puffed up by pride like the stave puffed marshmallow man, we can't fit through the narrow gates. But poverty of spirit, poorness of spirit, keeps one slim and trim through humility and repentance. Humility and repentance. If I'm full of myself, Christ is not precious to me. I don't need anything else. My hands, I'm full of the shiny little things that the world has to offer. The sugary sweets, the shiny things. And I don't feel like I need Christ. So if I don't have poorness of spirit, it's because I don't realize my weakness and my need. My weakness and my need, and that takes humility. Back years ago was a grad school, grad school at, at Clemson who had the opportunity to tutor other athletes in Vickery Hall. Developed a friendship with a, a soccer player named Frank. We'd do some calculus, and then we'd talk about stuff, try to share the gospel here and there. But Frank had this point he made to me. He said, you know, Daryl, Christians are, they're just needy and weak. They're just the ones who are needy and weak. And I tried to combat that. I said, no, we're okay. We got this strength and that strength. Sad thing was, he had a better insight than me. I should have agreed with him. I should have said, Frank, in many ways you're right. Many ways you're right. And one day I hope that you will have the humility to admit 
your weakness, your need, your hole in your heart that can only be filled with Christ. And I want to point this out too. That I, hope, I hope we don't see the Christian life as just a one-time thing where we say, and yes, there is that point where you're converted to Christ and you say, I need you, but it's also a lifelong awareness of our need for Christ, a greater and greater need for Christ. So this beatitude is one that's, that's received in principle, but it's cultivated in the garden of discipleship. And one of the most difficult things in this is, is the simple point of the pride and the self-righteousness. And self-righteousness being, in a sense, the most dangerous weight to carry. And like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, when he finally let the pack go, let that burden off his back, that's the self-righteousness that we so often need to shed. So the poorness of spirit, how can I know in a sense, that, that I have it. Well, you could say we're, we're in some way being weaned off the me monster. You're not like Gaston in Beauty and the Beast. How am I doing? How am I looking? Looking in the mirror all the time. We kind of chuckle at that. That's so silly. But how often is the athlete after the game, how are my points, my assists, my goals, my tackles, how did I do rather than how did my teammates do? How are they doing? Or looking at retirement accounts rather than how the missionaries are doing and investing and caring for them. Or over on the side saying, nobody's caring for me. Nobody's checking in with me. Nobody cares about me versus writing a thank you note and an encouragement note to someone else. It's been rightly said Humility isn't so much about thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less, being more interested in that other person, and being much in prayer and longing for grace. Lord, I see what the poverty of spirit is, and I realize how prideful I am. Change me, Lord. And I realize that the little bit of good of me the little bit of good that you're stirring up is due to your wind pushing my ship, not because I'm a good rower. Give me more grace. Because we can always find someone else who's a little bit lower on the totem pole, and then in pride and self-sufficiency, we can say, at least I'm not like him or her. At least I'm not like them. So we must get away from the illusion of self-sufficiency. Realize how utterly empty we are, then we actually end up being overflowingly full. As John Piper says, humility, humility can only survive in the presence of God. When we're done looking at the person, measuring up, we look at God, we can't help be humble in the end. And Jesus then says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, what is it not? He says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, not of the earth. We so often look in the wrong place for that kingdom. It's like looking in your kitchen for your bed or your bedroom for your food or your kitchen for your car. We look to the wrong things in the wrong place. When I was young, going on hikes with my dad, we'd often come to a stream. And in the stream would be a shiny golden rock. It's like, there it is. 
There's gold, Daddy. I'm getting that. Son, that's iron pyrite. It's gold. I don't know what iron pyrite. What are you talking about? Say, it's fool's gold, son. That's the same thing the miners years ago would often get deceived by. It's just fool's gold. So we'd walk on further down the trail. And then rocks in the trail. Look how shiny it is. It's a diamond. Now we're rich. You say, son, pick it up. Look at it. That just flakes off. That's just called mica. That's not the real thing. You're looking for the wrong. You're looking in the wrong place for these things. And so often we do that with heaven is expect the ultimate here on earth. So the kingdom of heaven, what is it then? The kingdom of heaven, that phrase, Matthew's the one who uses it. <clears throat> Others generally don't. He uses it 30 times and he says, literally in the passage it's saying, when it says theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he's saying of them is the kingdom of heaven. Of them, of the disciples. It's made up of Christ's people. So there's some sense in which it does exist already, but not yet. We are the heaven elect if you're a believer. You are elect to that position. So you are experiencing it together with others even now, though we long for the completion to come. And are we ready to give up what it takes for that? You've probably heard the expression of counting the cost. So much of what we do in life is a matter of counting the cost. Whether it's an infant on the side of the pool jumping to their parent who's willing to go underwater for one second to get the smile and the appreciation of the mom or dad who says, good job. That little infant knows about counting the cost to some extent. Or the teenage athlete who's willing to run a race and suffer in order to get the medal at the end to count the cost for that. Or to go on a diet in order to experience the cost of that in order to get a good health report. All of life, there are many times we count the cost. The famous mathematician, philosopher, physicist, Pascal, he put counting the cost this way. He put together what was called a Pascal's wager. You may have heard this before. There are four cases. He basically said, if someone trusts in Christ, but it's a lie, they lose basically nothing. If someone does not trust in Christ, but it's not real either, they don't really lose anything. But if someone does not trust in Christ, but it's real, they lose infinity. They lose it all. If someone trusts in Christ and it's true, they gain infinity. They gain it all. If you do the math behind it, it's to your benefit to go with God. Now, Jesus told his disciples to count the cost. His discipleship was hard. But it's much more than just saying, oh, yeah, I'll weigh this out, Pascal. Yep, flip the balance. I'll, again, back into this. Jesus wanted his disciples to be all in, not just backing into this and saying, okay, I guess it sort of makes sense. Because it's about relationship. It's about giving our lives to Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, something we don't hear that often but it's worth realizing, is when we speak of heaven, when we speak of heaven, there are different rewards. What do I mean by that? In some sense, you would realize, okay, that makes sense, that Billy Graham probably going to have a few more crowns or a bigger crown or whatever than I do. 
Okay? There are rewards in heaven. As Watson said, it is to God's mercy to pardon us, but it is to his grace to crown us. Now, the good thing is, whatever crown you get or crowns, you're not going to look at Billy Graham or your neighbor and say, that stinks. I don't want my crown. I want yours. Because that would be envy. That would be sin. That can't happen. Your crown, whatever it is, is going to fit perfectly. In an essential, cast it off at Christ's feet and says, it's all because of you. But I say that also to say this. Heaven is going to be so glorious. Heaven is going to be so glorious. As one Scottish theologian said, the first thousand years, basically, I'll just be looking at Jesus. And after that, I'll have a look around. Because it will be so great, it's all about him. Now, there will be, as as Blair said this even in the uh, Sunday school class this morning, we'll never be bored, we'll be having work to do. So the new heavens, the new earth that's coming, that we're waiting for, that we're counting the cost for, your reward will likely be to care care for this place in the new earth. Just as long as I get some mountains in Colorado, you guys can have whatever you want. I'll be happy there. But we will have things to do. We will never be bored. It will be perfect. It will be glorious. If it was boring, it would be sin, and it can't be that way. Heaven will be perfect because we're with Christ, and he is using you to do good and glorious things. Henry Morrison, missionary, and his wife, after 40 years story goes, of of toil in Africa. They returned from the mission field. And on the ship, on the return home, they're coming into the port, and they see many people there. Henry tells his wife, after all this time, they haven't forgotten us. But as they come closer into the port, there's cheering, but the cheering isn't for them. President Teddy Roosevelt was also on the boat, and he was returning from um, a, a hunting trip. All the people there gathered to cheer for him. Henry and his wife got off the boat. They don't give two hoots about us. They take the little bit of money that they have and go get a small one bedroom apartment on the east side of New York City, dejected. And broken. And Henry's wife says to him, She says, Go take it. Take this to the Lord. He can can deal with your complaint. Take this to him. Later, Henry comes up and his countenance has changed. She said, What's the difference? The man said, "I I was praying to the Lord, and it was as if he put his hand on my shoulder and said, Henry, You're not home yet. You're not home yet. So that is what we as Christians are called to, not to give up for things here on earth, to wait and patiently be humble, longing for that greater reward. Like a beggar showing another beggar, here is the bread of life. So my encouragement, our challenge to us this morning is very simple. How can you this week, 
to a watching world of Christians and non-Christians, how will you, how will I breathe out the poverty in spirit? How will we breathe out humility this week to show others Christ? Would you pray with me? Father, there is only one way, and that is to follow you. Everything else pales in comparison, and yet, admittedly, it is hard. We lose sight of what really matters because there's so much around us that's bad and evil and even good because you've made your creation good Help us always to realize that the creation points to the creator, our good creator, who loves us. Help us to humbly, humbly have the poverty of spirit to realize that we are indeed desperate apart from relationship with you. Help us to grow in being more and more desperate and therefore to be more and more humble and therefore to realize that it is all of you, through you, to you, our good and gracious God. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.